Hey everyone, it's time for the With a Bullet podcast. My name is Todd Golden, here with my biological brother, Matt Golden. Biological brother, what's shaking? <laughs> not, not too much. Um, did you do your Spotify wrapped up that, today? Or? Um, it was wrapped up for me, and Cassie, my daughter, has borrowed until re- she got her own Spotify account recently. But for most of the year, she was using mine. So it was completely polluted with uh, her songs on it. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, so if you look at Spotify and you look at me, you're going to see a lot of uh, um, a lot of Jonas Brothers. Oh, okay. Okay. Or maybe that's my cover story. And I've been listening to the Jonas Brothers. Could be. Could be. Yeah. <laughs> but so I think the highest song on there that was mine was um i don't know it was i've always thought those lists were weird when it came out last year Uh i I don't remember listening to that that much but whatever right um well the one thing that kind of cracked me up is um gabriel gunter's um it's been cb funker popped up in my hot 100 nice top 100 it should (laughs) <laughs> it absolutely should be. I, I want to. I know the Stranglers were up there on mine. If I had Spotify open, I'd tell you. But um, yeah, it mine's a mess because of the daughter factor. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So anyway, this week's uh, this week's with a bullet is about the is a little different. It's the Paz and Jop, which is a play on the old jazz and pop critics poll that has been conducted by robert Criscow since what the late 60s yeah i think so yeah this was the top 40 albums of 1997 uh this was your choice uh explain yourself um let's see well i I was just thinking of doing something a little bit different this is traditionally when like the best of the year or um, best albums of the year list comes out and initially, I was going to go for a magazine for this one. We hadn't done 1997 yet. Um, so I, I was thinking Spin Magazine for this year, but their list only goes to 20. So I went to Paz and Jop, which did have a top 40, and it's pretty similar to that. And there's a lot of good albums on this one. So that's part of the reason why I picked it. You say good albums. I say it gets better as it goes along, which would stand a reason given that that's the point but yeah um, you know I, I guess my thing with critics lists i'm a weird person i'm like some somebody who does tend to have probably what could be deemed as pretentious tastes in some ways but then i have a dislike of pretension itself so i'll read these lists and be like um you know this i never heard this shit why the hell would i want to listen to this shit so and i think sometimes the albums live up to that um bit of notoriety that i'm placing on it and sometimes they don't so Mm -hmm. i think this list um was a good example of that um there were ones on here that were critically acclaimed that i have no clue why and then there were others that i had not given a either hadn't heard of or hadn't given a chance that were pretty good so right and it's, I mean, there's also some stuff on here where like maybe it was a trend that was popular at the time. And then 
like fell out of favor a couple years later and you never heard from the band ever again. Yeah, I think there's there's always quite a bit of that. And I think this chart is interesting in that, at least on my side of the ledger, um, quite a bit of downcast type stuff, um, very introspective type stuff, not from everybody, but from a lot of artists. Um, you know, it, it, where a lot of I had a lot of trip hop, which I like. Um, yeah, I had some of that too. Yeah. But it seemed like the critical darlings were sort of, for lack of a better way to put it, to encompass all genres, a little bit navel gazing at times on my side of the chart. Um, I think yours, looking at it, you know, there was a little, I think your side of the chart had a little bit more variety than mine did. But yeah. Um, you know, it, it was definitely, for whatever reason, I never understood this. I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but, um, you know, 1997 was a pretty, you know, especially by the standards of now, pretty damn good year for most people. Yeah. It, yeah. it seemed like everybody was depressed and I don't really get right. it. You know, I mean, I think I mentioned that maybe it was on the 2000 one we did, um, it's like, what the hell is everybody depressed about? It's like, why don't you come get in the time machine and hop on over 23 years into the future and see how it's going. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. You know, that, we, we should be producing depressing music, but I suppose <laughs> that's how it goes. I mean, there's also periods where that would seem to be strife ridden and depressing and, and you hear like happy music or movies or whatever. So, right. You know, I guess there's not a whole lot of point in, putting a time frame on that stuff so anyway let's get cracking okay number 40 we'll start with you is uh primal scream with vanishing point um the title and the lead single for this kowalski are both references to the early 70s car chase cult movie vanishing point um kowalski was the name of the main character for that movie and that that, that was the only song i'd hear that i was familiar with mtv played it from time to time uh, presumably because Kate Moss was in the video. And I didn't really like it at the time. It wasn't really my cup of tea, but after hearing it for the first time in like two decades or so, I kind of like it now. Um, it's more or less a straight up um, can homage or ripoff uh, with dialogue samples from the movie and like a speeding car sound effect. I hadn't heard can yet in 1997, so I didn't really pick up on that homage at the time, but it's pretty cool. Um, the rest of the album isn't quite as great. It's mostly electronica, but there is one exception to that. Um, right in the middle of the song, there's a or right in the middle of the album, there's a song called "Medication," which is a very fateful homage to um, Sticky Fingers era Stones, and it sticks out like a sore thumb because I mean it is like right in the middle of the album. But their biggest hit before this, which was "Get Your Rocks Off," was another Stones homage, so it's not really surprising that they go back to that well. Also, um, this was really long. Um, I, one thing I noticed with all my albums was just how long all they were. Yeah, all it was the, were. Um, the age of the CD and an 80-minute length that you had. So, right, yeah. yeah, and people were trying their hardest to fill out the entire length of the CD in 1997. Um, in fact, there's only one album that I have that would fit on a single vinyl record. But any anyway, this was okay. So I have a lot of I have a lot of things in common with the movie Vanishing Point. If you've ever seen it, um, <laughs> what's what's that? 
I drove the part at the beginning of the movie, like when he leaves Denver, uh-huh. and gets into a car chase uh, with, I don't even remember who it was, but it's like along a river, maybe it's a cop. And uh, the cop, I, I don't know if he ends up in the river, but I've actually driven that stretch in Colorado. That's old US 6 that used to, pre I-70 would have been, uh, you know, the main way west. And it goes along just west of Golden, Colorado is where that was filmed. Okay. Uh, I, I think I might have driven on that too. Probably. And then also, I was once a blind DJ who played spiritual music to inspire <laughs> a man on a, on a kind of a only he knows the mission chase. And I have ridden a motorcycle around in the desert naked. Okay, okay. And I also drove into a concrete wall um, heroically, just like at the end of Vanishing Point. Yep, yep. We're, we're Actually, talking, I, to, your, we're talking I, to, your, to your ghost right now. Yeah, that's right. Well, <laughs> or I, or that's a true story. Vanishing Point came out in what? 70 or 71? I think so, yeah. I am actually the reincarnation of Kowalski. That's what it is. Ah, okay. Okay. So, yeah, that'll work out. <laughs> funny I say that because we, we, I did have a collision this week with a deer. So, Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, anyway. So, yeah. This is about me, basically. Like everything else is. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but... I forgot that Primal Screen did Get Your Rocks Off. That may be a Stones uh, tribute, but it doesn't sound at all like the stones yeah i mean it's it's in a similar style though i guess oh not really i mean it doesn't sound like exile <laughs> and main street stones at all well i mean it's i mean it's similar to this it's close enough to the stones where you can make the comp comparison i think the only comparison is that they mentioned rocks off that's about it yeah yeah that's true that's true <laughs> but uh, 39 for you is the Jayhawks with um, Sound of Lies. I'm kind of surprised this made the cut because when I looked it up, um, th- this was actually this actually got mixed reviews at the time. Um, it had everything from five star reviews to The Guardian only gave it four out of ten. Or no, I'm sorry, the The Guardian gave it five stars, and then Spin only gave it four out of ten. Uh, so it was all <laughs> over the place in terms of critical opinion. And if you're familiar with the Jayhawks, they basically are kind of, I would say, an early alt-country band. Yeah. Um, More in the early 90s before alt-country really picked up popular appeal in the late 90s is mainly when it was, it was, it wasn't like a straight line. I mean, Steve Earle was recording way back in the late 80s, but, um, you know, they were getting away from that, though, to more sweeping kind of pop rock with like Beatles influences and stuff like that the Jayhawks were their next album after this was certainly uh, smile was certainly rooted in that but um, <laughs> I all country fans didn't like it because they were switching directions I actually don't mind it at all I think um, it sounds you know it's it, they're trying to go beyond their roots but not in a like not in a way like another band I have later does I don't want to reveal it but um, it's okay it's an evolution um, this isn't going to sound like a compliment, but I actually do mean it as one. It sounds like a cross between Counting Crows and America. I can I can see that for them. Yeah, I, I don't mind the Jayhawks; they're fine. I mean, yeah. I don't I don't like stand for them or anything, but they're 
they're decent and this album is decent probably 39 without knowing what got left out is fine right yeah next up for you blur self-titled yes um this was blurs we're going to make it big in america album um this may have come out of the rivalry with oasis um oasis had already had two hit albums over here and uh, Blur just had a couple minor alternative rocks to show for it at this point. Um, maybe they were jealous. Maybe they wanted it to show up Oasis. Who knows? But anyway, this is more aggressive, more rock-oriented, um, less stereotypically British-sounding than their previous albums. There's nothing like park life here, no like cockney spoken word pieces. Um, the big hit off of this was Song 2, which is the one Blur song that everyone on earth has heard before because it's been put in thousands of ads over the past couple decades. Yes. And it gets played at sporting events a lot. And I'm pretty sure I heard it being used as bumper music on one of the NFL games this weekend. It's a jock jam. Um, Supposedly it was inspired by them getting slagged by Beavis and Butthead. Um, I, I looked up like the video that, inspired this and beavis said that he wanted to pee on them so uh but anyway they wanted to write something that wouldn't they wouldn't make fun of so it's their headbanger song i i liked it when it first came out but it got old pretty quick um luckily there's some other good stuff on here like beetle bomb which was a big hit in the uk obviously a beatles homage um mor which is sort of like a Lodger era Bowie image or homage and it actually has like a credit for Bowie and Brian Eno because it's close enough to boys keep swinging for them to be credited but also you're so great I'm like just a killer for your love death of part uh, death of a party all good stuff um, this is the first time I've listened to it in ages and I was kind of surprised by how well it stood up so Beetle Bomb was a much better song than Song Two. It should have been a hit. It was. I mean, it, it was. It got it got some play, um, but it was pretty good. I I will always associate Song Two with FIFA '98 because it was the theme song to that the, to that uh, game, which feeds into your accurate uh, description of it being a jock jam. But yeah, FIFA '98 still might be my favorite one of all time. I mean. Hmm. By today's standards, it would be primitive. I haven't played it in ages, obviously, but it right. had. It was a World Cup year. It they were starting to get quite a few leagues in there. It was beyond the basics, and I think that to this day that's the only World Cup one where they literally featured. Like you could go through and try to qualify as like Cura Body or something like that. I, I, I had a let's see. 2006 version it didn't have the club teams but it did have like all the well yeah teams. that's what they started doing after like starting in 06 i think maybe 02 they started putting out a separate game to do that stuff but they but you couldn't do it in the you know the base fifa but you could in fifa 98 so right which yeah. at that point would have been on ps1 i guess is probably what probably. i probably yeah so but uh and it was and it played well for its time. I mean it was so far advanced from the FIFA's you know that came before it. So Yeah, yeah. Like so. the one with Jakob Shlomo. <laughs> Jakob Shlomo, Tibor Kiss. Yeah. 
the, yes. the, although that was an that was an extremely influential game though coming yeah. right after world cup 94 but so yeah so woohoo yeah yeah exactly woohoo see but um number 37 for you is um supergrass with um in it for the money alternate titles for this album include hold on to the handrail and children of the monkey basket those were considered and okay ultimately rejected by supergrass um supergrass uh kind of i don't I, I guess i'll comment on this in a second but supergrass was part of a wave of brit brit rock bands in the mid 90s i suppose oasis leads that wave uh blur was part of that wave as well but it was weird in america they had varying degrees of success um it's almost like Oasis was the one who went big because they got a lot of hype mm-hmm. uh, and they were all right, but they weren't, they were, I thought they were uneven. Um, and then it's like people were really choosy about what they wanted from their Brit pop. You know, this is actually a very solid, a pretty wonderful album. Mm-hmm. Uh, alternately, alternately sounds like the Beatles smashing pumpkins of the time, or even like Sloan. Um, but Supergrass never made it in the same way here that like Oasis did. Um, you know, they were critically acclaimed and you heard about them a lot, but they never reached mass acclaim or mass popularity in the way Oasis did, or even like Bittersweet Symphony by The Verve or something like that. We were really picky about uh-huh. what we picked out of Britpop at the time. So I don't know if we, I don't know if that's bad timing. I don't know if there was some fatigue with, that type of stuff. I don't know if it was roped into kind of, it wasn't grunge, but I don't know if it was roped into that kind of vibe. Um, I mean, I think this is better than anything I've heard by Oasis. Hmm. It's not, it's not like life altering, but it's, it's good British uh, rock pop. So, but would you agree? I mean, I don't think super grass, super grass, you hear super grass and it's like, okay, yeah, they're from England. Right. I don't feel like most people were into Supergrass. I'm sure they had their fans, but right, you know. yeah. I mean, they had a few songs that got played on MTV every once in a while, but I mean, it was never like a big hit or anything like that. Yeah, but I mean, they they were basically a cult band for people who were into British pop music. Pretty like, much, I could, I could go to somebody's house today, like somebody who was our age. And find an Oasis album very likely in their album collection. Only, oh, yeah. yeah. Only hardcore music fans are going to have a Supergrass album, at least American fans. Yeah, and I'm that's not true. saying it, yeah. I'm not saying it'd be impossible to find it. I'm saying like no more than two out of ten people would have it. Whereas Oasis would probably be more like four out of ten. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I mean. Speaking for myself, I have Oasis albums, but I don't have a Supergrass album. Right. So, and you have a lot of albums. So, right. that's my, what all that means, who knows? Right. Yeah. Anyway, next up for you, we had to break a tie here. There was actually a tie for 35. I'm nice, or Matt actually took it before I could. Uh, he's going to get Daft Punk homework. Okay. Um this is a week after we did French chart, so we have another French group to talk about. Um, this was their first album. I was really only familiar with two of the si- with the two singles from the album, um, "Around the World" and "The Funk." 
Um, both of them had pretty inventive, memorable videos that were um, MTV2 staples. Um, MTV2 had just started around this time period. But anyway, um, the video for Around the World was directed by Michelle Gondry, who's um, gone on to do like actual films. And it has um, synchronized swimmers, 80s b-boys, people in skeleton costumes, mummies, and astronauts kind of orbiting each other to the beat of the song on what looks like the set of a 70s variety show. Um, pretty pretty good video. And the, the funk was directed by Spike Jones, and it features a sad sack anthropomorphic, uh, anthropomorphic dog man living in Manhattan, and he's going around blasting the funk on his boombox while he's like running errands and getting into various mishaps. And the song's always in the background, but the dialogue between the dog man and like the various people he comes across is like the focus of the whole thing, uh, which leads us to the YouTube comment of the week. Um, Assman999 said, I feel bad for him. So alone. He doesn't deserve that. He's a good boy. Such a good boy. <laughs> but anyway i like both of those songs quite a bit but i was kind of disappointed by the rest of the album i was expecting the rest of it to more or less sound like this but it was mainly just like straightforward house music Uh, not really my cup of tea i mean i guess it's all right but i was expecting more for this one cool all i have is some sort of craft punk uh, reference rolling around in my head that I can't quite get, <laughs> okay okay get, a, yep. get around to actually forming into a cohesive uh, uh, stupid thought <laughs> okay okay you have been craft punked yes yes craft punk <laughs> is a character on the Eric Andre show in case you're wondering right yeah exactly <laughs> but um, the other album we had tied for 35 for you is Fiona Apple with title. So how do you describe Fiona Apple's voice, at least on this album? I mean, do you like her voice? It's Uh, it's all right. I I think she's a strong singer and a good interpreter of her own material. Um, But that deepish kind of breathy voice, it has a short shelf life for me. Like, I don't want to listen to a whole album of that. Mm -hmm. The songs are really good. Uh, but songs like like Sleep to Dream, they remind me of like Carol King after she spent too much time mainlining Sister Morphine. I mean, that's because it's piano based. So that's where I'm making the Carol King. I mean, she doesn't sound at all like Carol King, but it's right. more because of the piano based songs that uh, Fiona Apple was doing at this point. Um, and it's like it's just I don't I don't care for music that's marching to the drumbeat of maybe not depression but it's just relentlessly downcast. And it's like, there's nothing wrong with that. Some of the best art ever is downcast, but I don't want to listen to 80 minutes of that shit. I mean, yeah, and yeah. I get why it's critically acclaimed because it's well-written and, and all that, but man, I don't want to, it's a chore to sit through that stuff though. Yeah. I, yeah. You're kind of right about that. Even when I'm in a bad mood, I don't want to listen to the t- that type of stuff. I mean, um, I don't know. I just uh, I've never understood the the whole and it's not just music from this period, just music from any period. But like that's why I've never been into like Leonard Cohen or anything like that. I mean, I find it just depressing. 
to listen to, even if it is good, you know, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I kind of get what you're saying there. Yeah. I need happy, fun music because I'm a vapid person. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I just, I, I don't know. I guess I just explained it as well as it could be. I just can't handle like an entire, like one or two songs. Sure. You know, but right. You know, like for example, sister morphine on sticky fingers is a relentlessly basically depressing song, but they don't stick with that theme through the entire album. You know? Yeah, exactly. I I usually skip sister morphine to be honest. I I don't think I've ever listened to that entire song. Huh? Yeah. Crazy. I, it's a good song. I just, all I'm saying is, is that, or like on Led Zeppelin, on Houses of the Holy by Led Zeppelin, No Quarter is a depressing, so it's interesting musically, but it's a depressing and it's stupid because it's about their roadies. But, um, right. but okay, one song like that, cool. It changes up the vibe a little bit. But then, like on Sticky Fingers, you go from Sister Morphine to Dead Flowers, which it has a depressing undertone to it, but it's an upbeat song. So it's like you need a little salt with the pepper, I guess is what I'm saying. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> number 34 for you is Blue Moon Swamp by John Fogarty. Uh, this is my first skip. Um, nothing against John Fogarty. Big CCR fan, but just needed something to skip. So, Fair enough. Yep. Um, 33 for you is Ron Sexsmith with other songs. I originally had something on this, but I had to go back and skip, so I skipped. Okay, okay. That would bring us to number 32, Perfect From Now On by Built to Spill. Uh, Built to Spill are from Idaho. They're more or less a one-man band. Um, Doug March, who's the lead singer and the lead guitarist, has been the only consistent member throughout their history. Um, when I saw them last year, and they were the last band that I saw before everything shut down, um, he just used the opening act as the rest of Built to Spill. Um, they're almost like an indie rock version of Neil Young and Crazy Horse to give you some sort of an idea of what they sound like. But anyway, this was their major label debut, and it was pretty uncommercial for a major label debut. Um, their last indie album, which was called There's Nothing Wrong With Love, was more commercial than this. And um, if you've ever heard There's Nothing Wrong With Love, they actually have as like a bonus track for the last track, a preview of their next album as a joke. And supposedly their next album was going to include a couple pump pop tracks and a hair metal ballad called Midnight Star. Um, unfortunately, none of that's on here. <laughs> But it's mostly pretty lengthy guitar jams, pretty good, but nothing really catchy. Um, I would heard a fly kicked it in the sun and Randy described eternity are all pretty highly regarded by the fans. It's good, um, but I hardly ever listen to this. I mean, whenever I want to listen to these guys, I either pull out there's nothing wrong with love or the follow up to this. Keep it like a secret instead. But it's, it's I mean, it's decent. Um good band though so yeah i like built to spill they're pretty good yeah yeah Let's see but 31 for you we have u2 with pop this is where u2 lost me for good I, I even when they got experimental in the early 90s with like zoo ropa and uh um octoon baby 
they stuck with their basic guitar bass drum ethos so you know they and that was interesting to me you know to see how far they could take that um particular you know to experiment but stay within their core sound but here they're delving deep into electronica and sampling and loops and while i don't mind any of that i actually actively like that on some of the other albums on this chart i do mind it coming from you too because it sounds forced it sounds like they're trying to be trendy and whether it's good or not is really immaterial because they aren't the messenger to deliver the message of that kind of music. And that's unfair to the artist, I suppose. That's probably a little, um, you know, that's probably me being a little intractable, intractable, but I, I, I heard this when it went, or when this came out, I was like, Nope, I'm done. You two <laughs> kind of like REM did the same thing a couple years after this, where they started, changing around their basic sound too and it's like i get it artists get interested in other stuff Mm -hmm. trying to be an ass but this just came off to me everything u2 has basically recorded since then has just come off as uh you know trendy and yeah yeah i agree with you on that yeah and this this was when they were like trying like to be cheesy too like intentionally cheesy like they had a village people homage in one of their videos i think or something like that. Yeah, that had started, though, back in the Octoon Baby period, because I remember they, in the early 90s, they invited, they, they were doing Dancing Queen at their concerts, and they invited uh, Benny and Bjorn from ABBA to sing it with them at one point. So they were delving into that mode even before this, but but they were still doing that type of stuff with this, and it didn't come off as as much as ironic as it did originally you know i mean uh by then it was kind of becoming rote to be honest but right so but i believe that also leads into my long distance dedication you are you are right about that yep so this was tricky we only had 40 albums on this normally we delve below that line but there were also singles and a very late 90s thing they actually had a compilations uh yep has yep. a pop thing which Welcome to the era of box sets and when the CD was still king. So I went into the singles to grab my long distance dedication. And I'm going to choose uh, Love Fool by the Cardigans. Okay. Uh, yep. I don't know how much I liked this song at the time. Maybe a little bit. I don't think I ever disliked it. Um, because at that, in 1997, I was thinking where I was in my life. I mean, by the time this came out, I was living in in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, But through most of the year, that year was spent with my mind on other things. I was trying to get a full-time job. That's what the first half of 97 was basically spent doing. Um, I was living in an apartment with my now wife in um, Indianapolis. And so my focus was on that. So, and plus musically, so I didn't have a whole lot of money to spend on any of this stuff, even if I did want to get it. Um, but apart from that, this was also the period where I was, um, kind of at my breaking point with both alternative music and top 40. If you want to draw a year where you chop off, where I become relevant and irrelevant in terms of the music I listen to, I mean, it's not a straight line, but 97 is as good a year as any. I mean, Uh there's albums after 97 I like and that I've bought and that I enjoy, but you, I looked at the 96 version of the Paz and Jop. There's a uh-huh. ton of albums on there that 
I've heard and own and that I consumed. And then you get to like 98 and it's very, very few. But so this is a good line of demarcation. So the cardigans kind of fell into that a little bit with Love Fool. And um, so I don't think I really got into how cool this song was at the time. I mean, um, and it's really grown on me over the years. I mean, it sounds really dense. It's kind of like the way I describe Casey and the Sunshine Band. It's very humid um, in the sound that it has, uh, especially the guitars. Um, the, the, and the guitar in this is really great the bass is awesome it's one of the better you don't hear that described in this song very much but the bass in this song is really good Uh, it sounds like a loungy dance song which is actually really hard to do if you think about it um the funny thing is is that the cardigans uh who are from sweden didn't really make this music normally they actually made straight ahead rock and roll most of the time um so this is actually sort of out of their normal wheelhouse um you know it's i I say rock and roll probably rock and roll of the time it had an electronic bent to it as well but um and some of their other songs are really good i mean by you know kind of in the streaming area era where it's a lot easier to get access to a band you know on spotify you know i actually went into a little bit of a cardigan's uh wormhole like a couple years ago and they have some good songs so, but this yeah, is their, yeah. but this is their magnum opus, and um, it actually made the uh, 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 made this list in '96 and '97 because this song was actually released in '96. So, hmm. anyway, it's become pretty. I think it's probably more love now than it was in 1996, '97. So, um, it was it was pretty popular. I, I thought it was pretty popular then. I, I mean, at least it was. I was living oh, in the dorms at the time and. Everybody seemed to like this one. Yeah, it's a good song. So I dedicate this to Sweden and their pop sensibility. <laughs> okay, okay. So anyway, we have another tie moving on. Yeah. Um, I'm going to, we have a tie at 29. You will get Peace and Noise by Patti Smith. Uh, this is a skip. Um, didn't really want to bother with a 90s Patti Smith album. <laughs> so. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, the other one at 29 for you is Prodigy with Fat of the Land. Um, change my pitch up, smack my bitch up. That's it. That's the tweet. How many people, you know, do you, do you get the reference I'm making there? I mean, how many yeah, people? Yeah. Do people understand on social media that that stuff becomes really old, like in 10 seconds? Like, that's it. That's the tweet. <laughs> right, right. Well, I wanted to. Uh, yeah. I, I like how uh, James Kahn's on there. He's like put end of tweet on like every single one of his tweets, which is kind of funny. Yeah. I mean, there's so many social media little tropes that be- because of the nature of social media, because you read them over and over and over again, um, just become old in like 10 seconds. It's crazy. But anyway, that has nothing to do with Prodigy. But um, Smack My Bitch Up was the well single from this album to the degree that people would play it and smack my bitch up you know pretty uh seemed like it would be a pretty straightforward thing uh it's obviously controversial probably controversial on purpose prodigy tried to explain quote the song's lyrics often held as misogynistic oh this is actually quoted from wikipedia this is not the wikipedia fun fact of the week though 
Um, okay. The song's lyrics, often held as misogynistic, were defended by the band, saying that the lyrics were being misinterpreted and the song actually meant, quote, doing anything intensely. Okay. <laughs> okay. Sure, whatever. I've always thought the only confusion about Smack My Bitch Up was whether they were referring to heroin or literally smacking a woman. I, I lean towards the H on this one. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's a fucking 1990s English rave song. Um, so how could it not be about heroin? You know, I mean, right. Like, yeah. I just assume heroin on that one. <clears throat> Prodigy got a lot of hype at the time, um, probably outsized for, frankly, what people would have been interested in hearing from them. And that reflexively turned me off back in 97 because it's like, oh, this band is getting hyped. Uh, they must need the hype. That's kind of the way I think, I guess. But, um, you know, and it reflexively turned me off. But then again, I would not have been predisposed to listen to UK based DJ music anyway at the time. <laughs> or now. It's OK, but it does sound really, really dated. Um, you know, is, no is fire started starter on this one? <clears throat> I think so. Okay, okay. But I listen to it and it's like, yeah, all right. I mean, it just, to me, that kind of music sounds samey after a while. You need a hook like smack your bitch up to get me to listen to it. <laughs> okay. But, I mean, I mean, I, I mean that seriously in the sense that it, it's like, oh, a song is called smack my bitch up. Um, you know, <laughs> that's going to get me to listen to what amounts to club music, you know, more so than like just naming it smack you know mm-hmm. right or, itch yeah. or up you know i mean <laughs> it, I, I it sounds like a dopey point but it, there is some truth to that i doubt anybody would remember prodigy um very much at all if, the, if this song didn't exist oh they they remember firestarter i mean firestarter yeah. was a big hit yeah, but Smack My Bitch Up is more famous than Firestarter is. I doubt that, no. <laughs> you Firestarter was, all, was on MTV constantly. Well, But Smack My Bitch Up is what you hear now. I mean, it's, and that was on a lot too back then. Just censored. You know, I mean, it wasn't... Because there was the BBC I read, or it was either BBC or ITV played just an instrumental version when it was like on top of the pops and on the radio and stuff like that. So... I, we're going to have to agree to disagree. I think Smack My Bitch Up is more famous. <laughs> okay, okay. All right. <clears throat> anyway, moving on. Number 28 is Dots and Loops by Stereo Lab. I almost considered skipping this one, even though I like Stereo Lab. It doesn't really sound that much different than any other Stereo Lab album. Um, it's just kind of a mix of easy listening, uh, jazzy pop, kraut rock, and they have one female singer singing mostly in English and the other singing mostly in French. I mean, it's, that's basically what they sound like. And that's what this sounds like. And um, most of the contemporary reviews of this album even acknowledge that it's like stereotap stereo labs up to their old tricks, four stars out of five. Yeah. Um, this is really good, but it sounds like their last four albums, a minus, you know, but anyway, this is, this is good. I mean, Sounds like every other one of their albums, but Stereo Lab's a good band. So. Yeah, I don't mind Stereo Lab. I mean, but you're right. There are bands that get, you know, kind of a free pass on stuff like that. And I say that saying that you know, a few spots ago, I'm blaming you two for changing their sound. So I'm right. being a little yeah. bit of a hypocrite there. But 
there are bands that no matter what they're going to get um a certain level of critical approval so pretty much yeah exactly see but number 27 for you we have ben folds five with whatever and ever amen this is a skip for me i actually originally had something prepared for this as well it's it's good but it's ultimately just not my thing ben folds five okay okay that leads us to number 26 wu-tang forever by the wu-tang clan this came out when i was like in the last week of living in the dorms and there was a ton of hype surrounding this album i i just remember a lot of people running out and um, getting the album before they packed up and left for the summer Uh, but this was their first album in four years and but Practically every member of the Wu-Tang Clan um, put out a solo album between the two albums, which featured guest appearances by the other members of the band. So in a way, this was actually their eighth album in four years. It depends on how you look at it. Um, But this is a double album, but it didn't really have to be. I mean, the whole thing is a little over an hour long. Um, Definitely would have fit on a single disc. I'm not sure why they made that decision. Um, but it almost all of it's straightforward, um, in-your-face aggressive rap. It never really lets up. Um, on the beginning of the second disc, RZA makes it 100% clear what they're doing. He says, um, I want to give y'all a little announcement, man. For the last year, there's been a lot of music coming out. The shit's been weak. You know what I'm saying? A lot of people are trying to take hip-hop and make that shit, shit R&B rap and bullshit. You know what I'm saying? Or make that shit funk. Fuck that. This is MCing here. This is hip hop. Wu Tang is going to bring it to you in the purest form, and that's basically what it is. And it's kind of funny that he's singling out like R and B rap because I know for sure that Method Man and um, Ghostface Killer had done like R and B type songs. But um, anyway, I mean, out of the nine MCs in Wu Tang, there isn't a single weak link there. I mean, all the verses on here are pretty great. And last week I mentioned generic hip-hop beats, and that's definitely not what you're getting on this album. Uh, Very aggressive drum samples. And then in the background, there's usually something pretty interesting going on, like sped-up R&B vocal samples, um, samples from easy listening albums, dialogue from old kung fu movies. Um, They even sample part of MacArthur Park at some points. I mean, it's pretty interesting, but um, this was a pretty big album. Went to number one, sold four million copies, even though it didn't have a hit single. Um, the first single, Triumph, was kind of infamous because it was um, six minutes long and it didn't have a chorus. Um, so, I mean, obviously that's not going to make it on the charts, but um, it ended up getting nominated for a Grammy for Best Rap Album, um, which led to um, the Old Dirty Bastards' infamous um, Wu-Tang is for the children incident uh, where, where he stormed the stage while Sean Colvin was accepting one of her words to complain about Wu-Tang losing to Puff Daddy. But anyway, this, I mean, I really enjoyed this one. I mean, this is the first time I'd heard it like all the way through and it was really solid album. So first I want to say ODB's effort is very appreciated and maybe has, um, become more re- resonant uh, in the years since. But I also have a confession to make. This is uh, something I'm going to lose all my street cred from. Okay. 
I have never been able to get into Wu-Tang Clan. Really? Huh. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why. I'm into other hip-hop. I just never, even at the time, I, w- I wasn't really, I was like, I don't really get this. So, hmm. I like some of them individually, you know, but um, <laughs> weirdly enough, ODB is probably the one who spoke to me the most because he's such a bizarre weirdo. Pretty much. And I mean, that's basically what he does here. I mean, it's yeah. like whenever he's like rapping, it's just like totally um, um, unhinged and stuff like that. But, but I want unfiltered ODB, not ODB mixed in with RZA and Ghostface Killer and stuff like that. I want my ODB unfiltered. Which okay. Unfortunately, we didn't get much of because he died not too long after this. But right, so, yeah. But yeah, yep. I, I'm not. I'm not. A, I'm not proud of it. I've just never been able to get into Wu Tang like I have some of the others over the years. Yeah, I mean, I. I mean, really, I. I haven't gotten too much into them either. I mean. Mainly, it's just because I don't really listen to that much rap. But I mean, I've—they've always seemed all right to me. So, yeah, I've never—I don't dislike them either. I just have never been able to get into it. Don't know why. Right? Yeah. Let's see, but um, number twenty-five for you, we have Richard Buckner with "Devotion Plus Doubt." Yeah, this is a skip. Okay. So, moving on, number twenty-four, "The Velvet Rope" by Janet Jackson. Uh, this is a skip for me. Um, just needed something to skip. So, all right. Uh, twenty-three for you is Whiskey Town with Strangers Almanac. Well, all country was sort of at its peak at this point in the mid '90s, um, and Whiskey Town is a big part of the alt country canon. Um, Ryan Adams is the lead singer, and he later went on to solo fame. Probably better known for his solo career at this point than than Whiskey Town, but but this is really good and totally emblematic of the form of all country because it has both alternative and country in it, which that's weird how that works out. (laughs) Um, The band whiskey town itself was famous for their strife. They fought a lot, sometimes may have sabotaged their own concerts because they were fighting rock and roll shit. Yeah. Um, And Adams was sort of notorious uh, for being a little bit of little difficult at times in his solo career as well um later on in the 2000s so yeah so they put out good music but they didn't always that they, they didn't always play well with others see yeah there's always like the stories of like ryan adams storming off stage when people like request brian adams songs and stuff like that right yeah <laughs> so but this is a good album i i listened to it and uh, i do like all country and uh so it was it was pretty good yep yep Next up for you, or yeah, next up for you, number twenty-two, Butch by the Geraldine Fibbers. Uh, this is a skip. I listened to a little bit of this one, but eh, I don't, I don't know. It didn't really do. What is it? For I've me. never, I've never heard of the Geraldine Fibbers. Like what style of music? It is sort of almost um, alt country. I mean, kind of indie rock, alt country type stuff. So, okay, yeah. But 21 for you, and this is actually a repeat for you, um, Buena Vista Social Club with Buena Vista Social Club. Yeah, and because of that, I'm skipping it because I talked about it last week. Go listen to last week's episode on the French chart from 1999. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Uh, 
that's my promo for the week. Last <laughs> week's last week's with a bullet from recorded on November whatever it was, two thousand twenty. Featuring yep. the whatever it was, French chart, French album chart from November twenty seventh, nineteen ninety nine. Here yep. on Spotify and all of your streaming uh services. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that brings us to you. Next for you, number twenty, either or by Elliot Smith. <laughs> uh, a few weeks ago I mentioned that Christopher Cross had like the one of the biggest disconnects between how he sounded and how he actually looked. Well, Elliot Smith gave him a run for the money. He had very sweet, angelic voice, but he kind of looked like somebody you'd find hanging out around like a liquor store or something. And there's also a similar disconnect between the album cover here and most of the songs. Um, On the cover, he's like in a dingy bathroom lighting a smoke. And based on that, you'd, expect something that sounded pretty harsh but instead you get a mellow kind of sleep sleepy sounding ballads um it's pretty sparse um just elliot acoustic guitar and some drums all of which he played himself but um doesn't really need any more than that um the songs are strong enough where they don't really need any embellishment um it's a really good album um but it wasn't really that well known at the time but it did have one sort of famous fan who ended up being important for Elliot Smith, um, the director Gus Van Zant, And he decided to use um, three of the songs here uh, for the soundtrack of Goodwill Hunting. And he also got Smith to write a similar sounding song, uh, Miss Misery, for the movie, which ended up being nominated for an Oscar and uh, led to one of the most awkward um, Oscar performances ever. And I, actually went back and watched that. And um, you can tell that Smith's like super nervous to be there. And like the orchestra, um, like the Oscars orchestra is like backing him up and it just sounds odd. But um, anyway, this is, I mean, really good album. Elliot Smith put out a lot of great stuff, but unfortunately um, died pretty young. So, but great, great, great stuff. So um this also would lead us to your long distance dedication correct that that is correct um let me scroll down here um let's see and i'm also sticking to the singles list on here um at number 23 tied with sean colvin's sunny came home we have sugar ray with fly okay (laughs) I, i saw this on the list and i immediately thought my god why the fuck is this on here uh, the passive job is a critics list, and I never thought the critics would so much as acknowledge Sugar Ray. And if they did, they'd probably just rightfully slag them. But I was wrong about that. This is supposedly the 23rd best song of 1997. Uh, prior to this, these guys were basically just like a jokey punk metal band. A single from the album before this, which was called Mean Machine, um, it used to pop up on 100, 120 minutes every once in a while. I just remember being totally repulsed by it. It was like the worst shit ever. I never expected to hear from those guys ever again, but two years later, you get this. Um, They're on the verge of getting dropped by their label, so they had to do something quick to change their sound, so they added a DJ, which is pretty late 90s thing to do, and instead of writing garbage like Mean Machine, they decided to go a different direction and 
write this garbage. Um, it's light, breezy, has dance hall reggae toasting on it. They quote Gilbert O'Sullivan. It's barely a song, but it's somewhat catchy. Um, somehow this managed to capture the zeitgeist of the summer of 1997, and it was completely inescapable. It was number one on the alternative charts, um, number one on the radio airplay charts. I was working at a amusement park in Minnesota in the summer of 97, and the ride I was stationed at uh, was right next to um, the stage where the park's house band used to play. And this song was part of the repertoire. So not only did I have to hear them perform it at the end of my shift, I got to hear them rehearse it all fucking day. So, I, I mean, I really started to hate that song after a while. Um, but this was a total fluke, um, something that shouldn't have happened at all. Um, the band even acknowledged that by titling their follow-up album 1459 in reference to Andy Warhol's 15 Minutes of Fame. Um, but they should have had one second left, but they decided to copy the sound of the song and it led to three or four more hits. So unfortunately they stuck around for a little bit longer, but, <laughs> but um, um, yeah, I, I guess I just dedicate this to um, um, Gilbert O'Sullivan because he's quoted. <laughs> you know what though? I'm looking at the list here and while fly is low hanging fruit, I think you, I don't think you uh, raised the bar high enough because also in this list, in the top, uh, this was, they went top 25 for their singles. Um, Fly is at 23, tied, like you said, with Sonny Came Home with Sean Colvin, which uh, I don't know how that made the list either. Um, but at tied for eighth is fucking Walking on the Sun by Smash Mouth. Yes, yes. Yeah. Number two is Tub Thumping by Chumbawamba. Yes. So I don't know. I mean, I'd rather listen to Fly than either one of those two songs I mentioned, although not by much. Um, so, yeah, the critics were all over the place on this singles chart. Hanson's Mbop is number one, which a lot of people hated. Actually, I, I actually, I mean, I really liked that song at the time, so I actually agree with that. I, I don't know about how much I liked it at the time because it was overplayed, but I mean, it was... But I can understand why it's critically up there because it's just a good, you know, pop song. But, um, yeah, so I don't know how it was just a it wasn't a very good year for singles. I mean, Spice Girls Wannabe is on here. Yeah. Your point. Prodigy's Firestarter is here. Yep. I still think Smack My Bitch Up is bigger. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, there's some dreck on this singles list, which makes me wonder how many critics they even you know, consulted on them. Yeah, I mean, I'm wondering how many magazines even have like a singles list. Well, and for them to get this from. Yeah, I mean, I look at those three like the 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 triple the uh, the the triumvirate of tub thumping, uh, walking on the sun, and fly all contributed to my abandoning uh, any <laughs> any more listening to alternative radio at that point. <laughs> Probably that, a good that, move. that that and swing songs. Um, which also would have been popping up around this time. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of differing musical trends. And then Top 40 would have had, was this the year that Princess Di uh, passed away? I think it was. Yes, it was. Yeah, so, so fucking Candle, Candle in the wind. the wind was on every other minute. So that even 
made me want to get away from that. So, yeah, that's why 97 is my line of demarcation. There was some shit that caused that. So, right. Yeah, exactly. At number 19, we have Beth Orton with Trailer Park. So I've never heard of Beth Orton until we did this. And I see the, the album title and I'm like, hmm, okay, this might be alt country uh, something or other, you know, Trailer Park. Um, but I was wrong. Orton is from the UK and it's not alt country at all. It's uh, actually her voice sounds a little bit like Sandy Denny from Fairport, Fairport Convention from the early 70s. Uh, British folk rock, um, <laughs> especially on the single She Cries Your Name, which is one of two taken from this album. Um, this is kind of my discovery of this countdown. This is mellow, trip hop-ish, but also folky, kind of like the wicker man of trip hop. So um, it's very good. And, you know, it's weird in that this is kind of the, I feel the opposite on this album that I do of U2's pop. Um, there, I want to hear more of their traditional sound because they've already established it. Here, I like it when Orton kind of experiments with electronic instruments and and some English folk leanings because I don't have any preconceived notion of what Beth Orton does. So it's interesting. So so context, y'all. Yep, yep. So, and yeah, so, since he mentioned the... I, I do remember She Cries Your Name and you mentioned The Wicker Man and that does kind of remind me of The Wicker Man soundtrack. From what I remember of it, the Wicker Man soundtrack. You mean the original one from the seventies? Yeah, yeah. I I don't know if I've ever even heard the soundtrack. I just thought it was a bunch of weird. Uh, well, it, it's it's throughout the movie. Like, yeah. I mean, they're like the villagers sing like folk songs and stuff like that. Yeah, it's kind of like the, <laughs> the Monty Python and the Holy Grail part where he's like singing the song about being a coward. That's basically the the wicker man soundtrack only only serious <laughs> <laughs> yeah i love the end of the wicker man where they're so happily singing their their song of uh renewal while edward woodward burns to death in a big giant wicker man yep Such yep a fucked up scene i love it i love that that movie's awesome i love it. it is it is i i really like that one anyway next up for you number 18 urban hymns by the verve well, this album has their hit. Um, the only song that most people in the United States have ever heard from this band, Bittersweet Symphony. And most people know this by now, but the song was built around an, a sample of an orchestral version of the Rolling Stones last time, which was um, recorded by their one-time manager, producer, um, Andrew Luke Oldham. And Verve cleared the sample with Decca, which put out... Oldham's version and every Stones album up through um, Let It Bleed. Um, but they didn't clear it with the Stones' second manager and a candidate for one of the worst people in rock history, um, Alan Klein, and that's yes. what caused the problem. Evil, evil Alan Klein. Yes, yes. And Klein sued them. Um, they settled the case, but it wasn't really a good settlement for them. They essentially had to sell all the rights to the song over to Mick and Keith for a thousand pounds. And this song was everywhere. I mean, I liked it at first, but I mean, it was a little too overexposed. It got tons of radio airplay. Uh, the video, which was pretty memorable, which had Ashcroft, Richard Ashcroft, the lead singer, uh, bumping into people on the street was on MTV pretty much all the time. It's used in tons of ads. 
I mean, God knows how much money these guys lost because of that settlement. And um, Mick and Keith did give the song back to the Verve last year. Um, once Klein died, they had like the go ahead to do whatever the hell they wanted with it. But um, they only they missed out on 20 year two years worth of royalties for that, which I'm assuming was like a gold mine. Oh, <laughs> just based it, on how much this has been played it, over the years. That, yeah. But anyway, I, I hadn't really heard any of the rest of the album before this, but it's pretty standard mid-90s Brit pop. It's it's okay, but there's nothing really that special about it. I mean, it's not really worthy of some of the accolades it's received over the years. Like, um, it was um, album of the year for Melody Maker, and it did win the album of the year at the Brit Awards this year, and it was voted by Q Magazine as the 10th best British album of all time, which, I mean, I don't know what the hell they're smoking there because there's no way, but I mean, it's, it's okay for what it is, but I mean, definitely not like one of the 10th, 10 best British albums of all time by any means. No, probably not one of the 10 best British albums of 1997. I actually went and listened to it myself last night because I hadn't heard bittersweet symphony in a while. Um, and I listen. I was like, "Huh, I wonder what the rest of the album listens to." And I agree, it's 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 all right, but it's not you know anything that needs to be ballyhooed, you know, as greatest ever or anything like that. The court case with Bittersweet Symphony was maybe the worst court case in rock and roll history. I think. I I, I mean, at the time, I remember hearing about that because I'm the opposite of you. I actually did not like Bittersweet Symphony at first, and after it was everywhere. It actually grew on me, which is normally the opposite of how it works. But, hmm. uh, and I remember hearing that on the radio. I was like, the Rolling Stones. And of course, nobody really got into the weeds of what the suit was really about because it was the Rolling Stones versus the Verve is the way it was basically portrayed, you know, in the in the media at the time. And I'm like, what the fuck? I go, I've never once listened to this and thought I was hearing the Rolling Stones. Never, never. Ever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Even if you take the sample that they got which is from the last time, right? That's the sample yeah, it's taken yeah. from. It doesn't sound anything at all like the last time, like as you know it by the Rolling Stones. Um, and it's only a little tiny piece of it too. I mean, it's, it, you know. Right. That, and I was like, what the fuck? And then I heard about the judgment of this, which was draconian as hell. As yeah. You mentioned. And I was pissed. I was actually pissed at the Rolling Stones, even though it was more Alan Klein, which of course you know, unless you read about the details of it, you know, it was all Rolling Stones taking money from uh, the Verve. And I was like pissed off. I'm like, God, how fucking greedy do you need to be? You know, you guys are getting royalties hand over fist. You rob your own bandmates out of songwriting credits. You know, it's like, how much more do you need? Right. Yeah, exactly. I still think it is the worst rock and roll plagiarism judgment of all time ever. I, I don't think there and and you're right. I mean, it really fucked the Verve. I mean, because that thing was ubiquitous there for like a two, three year period in commercials and all that. Um, it's a real shame that um, uh, you know the devil, Alan Klein, uh, you know, pretty much fucked them out of financial security. Really, pretty much. And I, I mean, they ended up breaking up shortly after this. I mean, I'm assuming because of that. Well, it, it would have been Richard. I think Richard Ashcroft wrote it, right? I mean, he did. So, yeah. So he would. He is the one who got screwed. But, um, right. 
but yeah, that's of all the ones. And there's been one since um, that I've thought that people lost that I thought were more legitimate than um, than this case was. What what was it? The um, was it Spirit versus Led Zeppelin on Stairway to Heaven? Yeah, um, yeah. That one's a lot closer than this right. one. Right. Um, one of the ones that did when Blurred Lines lost to um, uh, Marvin Gaye's estate for uh, Got to Give It Up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that was, they deserved to lose that because it does sound like Got to Give It Up. But right. it's just, I, I don't know. I don't know. They, Alan Klein's lawyers must have known the right, you know, work the system to their benefit, obviously, unfortunately, because the Verve really got screwed on that. Because I like this song. I think it's one of the better songs of the late 90s. And yeah. you, mentioned, you mentioned the video. The video is pretty iconic. And um, I mean, I have to feel like most of that is staged, but they seem to claim that it was parts of it were not where he's walking. If you don't know it, he's walking through the streets of the East End of London. He's knocking people over and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, a bunch of people get in his face and stuff like that. Walks across a car, and I mean, based on the camera angles and all that, I mean, it, it had to, had to have been staged. But I mean, yeah, uh, probably. But it's still a cool video, and uh, it's a shame it kind of killed their career in the crib, really. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Let's see, but seventeen for you. We have spiritualized with ladies and gentlemen. We're floating in space. Space rock. That's what this is. Yeah. Space rock. I kind of like space rock. Um, The album title, which is a cool album title, by the way, um, comes from the 1991 novel Sophie's World by Yoshin Garter. The quote from the novel is, only philosophers embark on this perilous expedition to the outermost reaches of language and existence. Some of them fall off, but others cling on desperately and yell at the people nestling deep in the smug softness stuffing themselves with delicious food and drink quote ladies and gentlemen they yell we are floating in space but none of the people down there care <laughs> um that's the quote from the novel which i i should have i should have did that like as if it was like the end of knights in white satin that would have been cool <laughs> <laughs> right. um there's a lot of shit going on in this album as there usually is with space rock you got multi-tracked vocals on top of one another which is actually kind of cool um it's cool it's dreamy at times but it can also be really overwhelming like a lot of space rock and psychedelic type rock can also be so um pretty good probably wouldn't listen to it on a on a daily basis or anything like that but uh but points for the album title because i like it yeah, yeah. We actually are floating in space, if you didn't already know that. That, that is true. We are. Yep. We're just a big dust speck in the middle of somebody's uh, uh, living room in <laughs> a different uh, dimension. <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> well, you know what I've never been able to figure out about space? like, Or, or more less space than space fiction is when they travel in space, it's always basically linear like like take for example like in star wars or star trek where they um go into hyperspace and Mm -hmm. shooting off to all the other planets which are all on a straight line you know throughout the universe and it's like how come they never go up or down yeah yeah what's below what's below the earth what's above the earth and it's like we almost have this weird conception of like we still have like this 
sort of Galileo era thing where like it's like heaven up there and then hell is underneath us but it's infinite stretching out you know parallel to us right yeah 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 you're right about that thought of that because we are floating in jet ladies and gentlemen we are floating in space yep we're not taking advantage of all the space we're floating in so (laughs) i want to see seriously in a movie i want to see somebody hyperspace like straight up because why couldn't you they they should you're right about that they should fucked up anyway number number 16 uh, for you is Wycliffe Jean presents the carnival featuring refugee all-stars by Wycliffe Jean. Uh, this is a skip. Um, Gone till November was a big hit off of this one. Um, just needed something to skip. So, all right. Uh, 15 for you is Ronnie size represent with new forms. Also a skip. Same reason I had to skip something. Oh, okay. Okay. Number 14 for you is Portishead with a self-titled album. This is trip hop. Um, we had Sour Times by these guys on one of our alternative charts, and this is more or less the same thing. Um, not much variety here. It essentially sounds like 11 different James Bond themes, and I mean that as a compliment. Um, a lot of it sounds distorted on purpose. It's almost like they're trying to make it sound like it's being played on a crappy old Victrola or something. Um, It's grainy. There's a lot of like fake pops and scratches in the background. And also about half on half of the songs, Beth Gibbons vocals are really tinny sounding like, um, like twenties or thirties sounding. So it drives home the whole, uh, we want this to sound like an old 78 type of thing, but uh, this was pretty cool. I like this one. Um, Portishead is still together, but they've only put out one studio album since this one, and it's been over a decade since the last one came out. So um, they're probably due for another, and hopefully that comes out at some point. Yeah, Portishead is all right. I have a few of their songs on my like list, um, but I have to be in the right mood to listen to Portishead. It's not like I can just pop them on. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree with you on that one. You're not going to play Portishead at like like to raise the roof at a party or anything like that (laughs) definitely not (laughs) raise the roof y'all we're putting on some motherfucking tortoise head yeah yeah (laughs) yeah it's definitely not party music but um 13 for you is the notorious big with life after death well biggie was cool as hell i liked biggie a lot he um is the only, probably the one and only guy from the Puff Daddy universe who uh, who I really had a thumbs up for. Um, I guess, I don't know if Jay-Z counts as Puff Daddy universe. He recorded with him, but um, at that time, I wouldn't have had much time for Jay-Z. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, Notorious B.I.G., he could rhyme and he had flow, um, which are two things that you kind of need to do hip-hop correctly. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, and he had a great voice and his lyrics were cool. Um, you know, his image was cool. Uh, he was just cool. I liked uh, Biggie. Unfortunately, as you probably already know, this was released uh, 16 days after he was shot to death, probably in a revenge killing for Tupac Shakur also being shot to death. Uh, yeah. In the probably the Nate or not probably certainly the nadir of the 
kind of informal East Coast, West Coast rap war. Um, this inevitably, his death inevitably meant that this album was, the, the sales of it were going to go through the roof, although they would have been probably pretty big anyway. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely would have. So, but yeah, Biggie was uh, was was cool. The albums, uh, I don't really like, um, you know, the, the probably the biggest one off of this was... Um, Mo money, more problems, or more not more problems. Mo money, mo problems. Mm-hmm. It was all right. I mean, you know, but that's the, the that's the one Biggie song that's guilty of Puff Daddyism, where they're literally just talking over another song, because you know that just drives me crazy about about Puff Daddy shit. But oh hey, yeah, yeah. If only the rest of the Puff Daddy universe was half as good as Notorious B.I.G., the world would be a better place. Right. Yeah, you're right about that. So, And I, I will correct you about Tupac being dead because he is actually alive and he's living in a cave in Hawaii. Oh, really? <laughs> or at least that's what the conspiracy theory was back then. He's smoking weed with Don Nelson in Hawaii? Yes, yeah. <laughs> they probably talk about the Tiki episode of Brady Bunch, which also took place in Hawaii. Yep. <laughs> but, but yeah, that was like the... That was like the big conspiracy theory at the time that like Tupac wasn't actually dead. Oh, I, I've, I've, yeah, you, <laughs> right. I, it was weird because I was more, there's, you know, if you split it, it sounds stupid now, but people really did split their tastes up into whether they like the East Coast or the West Coast um, rappers. I don't, I thought, you know, it, I thought it mostly died out until Tupac and Biggie's. Uh, murders you know i thought that was more of an early 90s thing but mm-hmm. what was weird was is i tended i definitely preferred west coast rap um but i did prefer biggie to tupac so yeah that's worth. yeah yeah i i mean i definitely prefer biggie to tupac but I'd, I'd actually probably go with east coast believe it or not oh yeah well guess what i'm gonna have to murder you for that okay okay like which which <laughs> east coast are you referring to well i'm not saying i disliked every east coast rapper that's not true but um like well i mean i mean just in general i mean west coast was only like kind of in the forefront for maybe a few years but east coast has kind of like endured over the years Mm, okay i'll yeah i'll let you say that i don't agree with it but Okay. West Coast rap was funkier than East Coast rap. That's what I liked about it. Yeah, yeah, you are right about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's G'd up. (laughs) G up. Okay. I don't know where I'm going with that. Uh, Next up for you, number 12, is Dig Your Own Hole by the Chemical Brothers. Uh, Back with another one of those block rocking beats. (laughs) (laughs) One One of the most surprising things that I found out while I was. I'm researching this episode is not only are the chemical brothers still together, uh, but they also still regularly put out albums. I I swear to God, the last time I heard anything at all about these guys was about 20 years ago, Uh, but they've somehow put out six albums since then. Uh, Wikipedia actually has their U S sales figures and their discography. And it's kind of interesting to see like how much it dropped off. Um, This was their peak. They started at, um, seven hundred fifty thousand. Um, then the next one was four hundred. 
Then it dipped to like 30,000 and stayed there for about a decade uh, before dropping to 8,000 for their last one. Uh, people just aren't into rock, block rock and beats anymore, I guess. Nope. But um, anyway, I mean, this obviously was their high watermark. Uh, block rock and beats and set and sun, um, which was their homage to the Beatles' Tomorrow Never Knows, which featured Noel Gallagher on vocals, got quite a bit of airplay on MTV and alternative rock radio, even though the positions on the alternative charts don't really indicate that. I mean, maybe the station in Cincinnati where I was living um, just liked them a lot and played them a lot, but um, they're decent singles. Um, the rest of the album is very 1997. Hasn't really aged well. I mean, there aren't really any hidden gems here. It's also one of the loudest albums I've ever heard. I mean, just like, if you put this on like the lowest, like, if you put this like on one, like on volume, I mean, it would still sound like like five for everything else. I mean, it is just super loud. But I mean, I I like those singles at the time, but I mean, this wasn't that great. So, so who has the best legacy out of the Chemical Brothers, Prodigy, or Moby? Hmm, it's tough to say. All... I mean... They all basically that sound died within five years after this for all of them. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd also lump Fat Boy Slim in there. Oh, yeah. 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 Fat Boy Slim, too. Right. He, he belongs. But maybe, maybe Moby, even though he was like, I mean, every single one of his songs was like in a commercial at the time. So it got like, I mean, he got sick of it after a while. But I, I'd say that he was the best out of those. I guess. I don't really have a choice. <laughs> okay, okay. I'm too, picking Prodigy just to to promote Smack My Bitch Up more. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, but number 11 for you is um, Steve Earle with um, El Corazon. A lot of people don't know this, but El Corazon is, if you translate it to English, means the Corazon. Okay, okay. So actually, it means the heart, as you probably already guessed. Yeah. Wise ass filter. Steve Earle, he's the original all country Svengali uh, to some degree. Um, Earl was sort of my gateway into all country when he'd pop up on the radio a bit in the late 80s when classic rock was sort of like, huh, this all country stuff. We could play some of this shit. So <laughs> most people remember Copperhead Road, which Steve Earle put out. Um, and I think 88, 87 or 88, which is a good song. Um, <laughs> so to me, Earl was always sort of the template for alt country um, for, because although he probably delved more country than alt, if you want to put it that way, but he certainly helped uh, create acceptance for the sound and was really good in his own right. Um, however, by this point, he was already sort of kind of like the Jayhawks. He was sort of already morphing into more of a, kind of a Beatles-ish rock melody type sound. He still had country elements on this album, no question about it, but you could hear where he was going um, by around the turn of the century. He was putting out almost like sort of psychedelic-ish uh, sound music. Um, I remember hearing quite a bit of it at the time. Um, but this sounds a bit like my favorite alt-country album, The Criminally Unknown Northern Kingdom. Um, which is also put out in 1997 by the equally criminally unknown Sherry Knight, um, hmm. 
who disappeared from the music scene shortly after recording it. But that album was produced by Steve Earle. He played on it and was likely, it had to have been recorded at the same time as El Corazon because um, Emmy Lou Harris sang on both albums. So a lot of the artists are similar. So, uh, but yeah, Sherry Knight, that's, that's a great album. And she like quit the music business. She was from New England and uh, is a gardener these days, which is <laughs> part of what that album's about. So she uses the the metaphor of gardening for quite a few songs. So, but Steve <laughs> Earle, legit. I like Steve Earle. He's good. Yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah. I know. I'm, I know. I'm breaking a lot of ground by saying that because most people hate Steve Earle. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. Right. Yeah. No, Steve Earle is good and um like I said, I I consider him kind of the original alt country guy, do you? He probably is, yeah. I mean you're probably right about that. So. Yeah. Unless you count unless you want to go way back and say like whale like the outlaw guys are alt country, but I don't. They're Yeah, or he or he could like include Graham Parsons or something like that. Yeah. But that even that's not alternative though. I mean yeah. And and he himself wanted to that wasn't really his mission either in doing what he did. So but Right. Yeah. Anyhow, number ten is Bright in the Corners by Pavement. I'm I'm not surprised that this album is on the list, but I'm surprised that it was this high up there. Um this is the one pavement album that doesn't really have an identity. Um you have the best album, Slanted Enchanted. Um, the most successful album, Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain. Um, the weird album, Wowie Zowie. And the Stephen Malkmus solo album, Terror Twilight. Um, this, I mean, you can't really say anything about this. I mean, it's lighter than most of their albums. Um, but it doesn't have, like, anything you can really say about it. Nothing really rocks here. Um Stereo and Shady Lane, which were the singles, are still pretty highly regarded by Pavement fans. And Stereo has, like, the most quoted Pavement lyric, which is, uh, what about the voice of Getty Lee? How did it get so high? I wonder if he speaks like an ordinary guy. Um, But the rest of it's decent, but pretty forgettable. Um, They jam quite a bit on some of the songs, which is, kind of an extension of what they were doing at the live at their live shows at the time uh, but it's kind of aimless um in the dvd that they put out slow century they mentioned that they started doing that to piss off people who were booing them at Lollapalooza. so they kind of um took that into their albums but um since i mentioned the album that after this was sort of a stephen malcolm's solo album this is the last one that um, features um, contributions from Scott Spiral Stairs Canberg. Um, two of his songs on here, um, Date with Ikea and Passat Dream, which are probably two of his better songs, but um, his stuff was always like a little bit um, further down the list than like what Malcolmus was putting on the albums, but this is the last time he was on one of their albums. But the bonus addition to this um, features a song that um, out of like just sort of an anomaly became their most listened to song on Spotify. Um, Harness, the song's called Harness Your Hopes and it's kind of a forbe- forgettable outtake. And it was always a mystery of 
why it was ranked at all on Spotify, much less like a million plays more than anything else that they put out. Um, but there was an article that came out a couple weeks that explained it. Um, why it's on there is a combination of Spotify's algorithm and autoplay. Um, apparently it has a lot of similar elements to other songs. And if you like play a playlist and one of the songs on the playlist is similar to that song. Um, if you keep running the playlist afterwards, um, they'll just like start playing other songs. So if there's something similar to the harness, your hopes, it'll just play harness your hopes because it sounds similar. Um, I, I've had it pop up a couple times, but um, but kind of a weird algorithm Spotify thing happening yeah. here. But um, but yeah, I mean this one's okay. I mean it's probably I I wouldn't say it's my least favorite payment album, but it's pretty close to that. I mean they were kind of trending downwards in the late nineties, but yeah. That Spotify thing, it's interesting when that happens, when you run at the end of this uh, uh, playlist. But now that you mentioned why that happens, I'm going to try to stump the Spotify algorithm. I'm going to play <laughs> okay. something weird. I'm going to play, I don't know. I'll have to figure it out. But I want to stump it. I want to see what I can do. Or just make it <laughs> blow up. Like like the Star Trek episode where they, the, the computer that's like running the whole world like in this like the the landru i think is what it was called and they like had to say they they had to like stump landru and he blew himself up that's what i'm going to do to spotify okay okay i'm going to, play, I'm going to put rancher randy in there and see what happens you should put rancher randy in there on spotify yeah that'd be cool if i could find that'll blow up spotify just like landru from star trek <laughs> that episode is cool and Star Trek. That's the one where like Sulu gets that's the one where they have the sticks and if they zap you, you become basically part of the cult. It's like one of one of the old West episodes of Star Trek, but it's the one good one. Where, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So read all about <laughs> well, it, Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah. But number nine for you is Bjork with homogenic. Uh, I think you picked this just so I got to talk about Bjork. So <laughs> I mean I knew what I was in for when I saw the album cover and Bjork is dressed like an Asian like queen. She looks like she's in like the court of a Japanese uh, king or something like that. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. Okay. So that was the immediate warning sign that I was about to delve into some pretentious bullshit, which is what it was. And I've just never been able to get into Bjork at all. And I, it's not that I don't, you know, mind, experimental music sometimes i really like experimental music i like some of the experimental music on this chart and a few albums that i still have to talk about and it's not that i don't like avant-garde music i do like weird avant-garde music at times but bjork just has never tripped my trigger at all i actively dislike bjork because it's like she's doing it to annoy me or something i, I mean i know <laughs> it's silly to internalize that but um, and the thing that also annoyed me is that she's received rave reviews for pretty much every damn thing she's ever recorded. And I don't get it. I mean, I, I guess I listen to Bjork and I wonder why in the hell anybody would want to listen to a whole album of what basically is relatively tuneless music. I mean, yeah, no, oh, I've never understood that. I've never understood why people would want to listen to Bjork at all. I don't get it. 
I mean, yeah, I've never really gotten past her voice. I mean, it's never really appealed to me either. Her voice is part of it, but it's also, you know, very spare. Most of what she records is relatively kind of depressing, honestly. It's like you go to Iceland and you're going to commit suicide and you're going to go listen to a Bjork album before you do it. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I don't care for Bjork and I never have ever understood why she was critically acclaimed. Um, And like I said, I mean, I'm more than willing to open my mind, but sorry, I've tried. I don't get it. Don't like it. But on the bright side, Iceland does have volcanoes. That that is true. Yeah. Right. Yep. So <laughs> anyway, number eight for you is If You're Feeling Sinister by Bell and Sebastian. This is a landmark indie rock album, but to call this rock would be a little bit of a stretch. It's been categorized as twee pop, chamber pop, or baroque pop. But the best way to describe it for me would be Village Green era kinks mixed with um, Vince Guaraldi's Peanut soundtrack. Um, that's okay. that's about as close as you're going to get to uh, describing their sound at this time period. But um, they're a Scottish band, and they started almost by accident. Um, Stuart Murdoch, who was the lead singer and primary songwriter, um, was in a music business class in college. And he put the band together for a class project, which uh, became their first album, Tiger Milk. And from what I remember, he didn't even get that good of a grade for it. But it got a lot of attention in Scottish indie rock circles. Um, so less less than a year later, they signed to an actual label and recorded this, which is um, the refined version of Tiger Milk. Um, the songs are about loneliness, relationships, depression, stuff like that. Um, sad bastard music, I guess. Um, nothing that's going to sell a million copies. At one point in the song, um, get me get me away from here. I'm dying. Um, Murdoch acknowledges this. He sings, you could be either successful or you could be us with winning smiles or us with no catchy tunes or words. No one photogenic, you know, we don't stand a chance. Um, But they're also pretty reclusive at the time, which also didn't really help their commercial prospects. Um, They refused to do interviews or do photo shoots. Um, They didn't appear on their album covers. They would just hire a model. But in a way, it sort of helped them with the critics and in indie circles because there was an air of mystery about them. But they softened their stance on most of that. And um, instead of being like enigmatic Scottish folkies, they just became like regular old Scottish nerds um, once um, they revealed themselves. Uh, But this is a really great album. I'd probably actually rate this as one of my favorite albums of the 90s. Um, a lot of great songs on here. Get me away from here. I'm dying, which I already mentioned. Um, Judy and the Dream of Horses, uh, Boy Done Wrong Again, like Dylan in the movies. Great stuff. Uh, pretty influential too. Like roughly a third of all indie music that came out in like the mid 2000s sounded like this album. But Bell, Seb- Bell and Sebastian are a great band, and this is a great album. So. <clears throat> All I can say to that is, I. Okay, okay. <laughs> that that works. <laughs> but um, number seven for you is Erica Badu with Baduism. Or er- Baduism. Erica Badu, more like Erica Bad-do. I didn't really have anything there. Um, 
the easy cons- comparison when you listen to Erica Badu is to compare her voice to Billie Holiday, which makes sense because she does sound quite a bit like Billie Holiday. But the less obvious comparison, I think, um, as far as the style of her music, is to compare her work here to Roberta Flack. And so this is in that same sophisticated soul realm that Flack kind of mined in the in her own way in the in the early 1970s, well, throughout the 70s. Um, and this is basically kind of an updated version of that, which, which takes into account 90s hip hop culture and all that, although it's not like heavy on that. Um, but it's still in that universe. It's good. It's really good, actually. I, I enjoyed this. And uh, this was kind of a wing of R&B and soul at the time. Um, Badu recorded with D'Angelo, who did much of the same thing that she was doing um, from the male point of view, same style of music, but pretty chill, pretty good, pretty jazzy, honestly, at times. And um, good album. I liked it. Okay. Yep. No, you're supposed to say I. I. <laughs> All right. Next up at number six, Fly by Missy Misdemeanor Elliot. Uh, beep, beep. Who's got the keys to the Jeep? Uh, that's obviously the most quoted line from this album. And it's from the Rain Super Duper Fly, which was uh, Missy's big breakthrough hit. And it's built around a sample of Ann Peebles' I Can't Stand the Rain. And it had a pretty memorable video where she's wearing a blown up garbage bag and she's dancing in front of a fish, la- uh, fish eye lens. Um, I've always really liked that song, but I never made a point to listen to the whole album before this week, which was a mistake on my part because this is really good. Um, she's timbed up with Timbaland here. And we talked a little bit about him on either our 2008 or our 2013 episode. Um, about a year before this came out, the two worked together on Aaliyah's One in a Million um, album, and Elliot was signed to her own record deal based on the success of that album, so it was natural that the two would work together again. Um, Timbaland's production on this is very hyperactive. That's the best way to put it, and Missy's rapping sort of loopy, I guess, and the combination of that puts off like a really goofy energy and Busta Rhymes intros and outros the album, so it adds like an extra layer of goofiness. It's pretty unique, um, pretty solid album all the way through. And um, not only does she um, kind of like redo I Can't Stand the Rain, she also essentially redoes uh, um, it's called Pass the Blunt, but she steals the chorus and the Billy, 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 Billy bum part. So. Um, and also, Beat Me 911 is based around an obsolete technology, and I'm always a sucker for songs like that. But... I, I think it's funny that she called herself misdemeanor, like that's hard or something. Like, Yeah, I know. She, she's dropped that recently. I, I don't know exactly when she did drop that, but she did drop the misdemeanor part. Missy Jaywalking Elliot. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. I don't know, but but um, this was also nominated for Best Rap Album at the Grammys. But like Wu-Tang Clan, she also lost to Puff Daddy, which is pretty unfortunate. But this is a good album. so Yeah. But number five for you, we have Yola Tango with I Can Hear the Heart Beating as One. I haven't listened to Yola Tango in quite a while, but I do remember digging them when I did hear them back in the day. Um, 
but never to the point where I actually pulled the trigger on any of their albums. And that's unfortunate because this is a really good album. Um, though the first notes on this, it's kind of funny, um, sound like Aldo Nova's fantasy because it has the same kind of sound effect. Um, okay. Sadly, we won't be having any laser. We won't be having any laser guitar wielding histrionics on this album. Um, <laughs> probably the best way I could describe um, this album and just really Yola Tango in general is that they're sort of they're they're like a slightly more tuneful and a bit more mellow than uh, Sonic Youth. That's probably the best way I could describe it. Not on every song, but on most. Which means it also yeah. inevitably dabbles in Velvet Underground, which is probably the biggest influence on Sonic Youth or one of them, um, especially on Center of Gravity, which sounds like a loaded outtake. I mean, that, you know, sounds because they do have a female singer in there. Um, I must have had Stockholm Syndrome on a mixed CD or mixtape because I definitely remember hearing that song quite a bit, but it was never a single. Mm-hmm. Um, this is very 90s, but in the best sense of the term. Um you know, really, really good album, you know, a lot of feedback guitar and all that, but pretty cool. Um, not for everybody. <clears throat> this would be filed under avant-garde music probably to some degree. Um, but I like it. Um, and Yola Tango also gets points for having an album in the two thousands called, uh, I am not afraid of you and I will beat your ass. Yes. Yeah. Great album title. So they, they, they also had, uh, let's see, they they had a side project called the Condo Fox. Yeah, actually, I am not afraid of you, and I will beat your ass. Starts off with this like fifteen minute uh, song that's actually like really good. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, these guys have always I've always really liked this band, and this is a great album. Too. Yeah, yeah, really good yeah. stuff. So, next up for you at number four is "Dig Me Out" by Sleater Kinney. Um. Let's see, I alluded to this when I was talking about my first album, but this was the only album on my side of the list that could fit on a single vinyl LP. I mean, it's only 36 minutes long, and this is sort of a punk album, so that's pretty standard length for that. Um, Slater and Kenny um, were from Olympia, Washington. Um, they got their name from a road in Olympia, Slater Kenny Road. Um, which was near where they practiced. Um, they grew out of the riot girl scene in Olympia. Um, Corinne Tucker was in the band Heavens to Betsy. Um, Carrie Brownstein was in Excuse 17. And it initially started as a side project of those two bands. But eventually those bands broke up, so this became their primary band. Um, this was their third album, and it was their big breakthrough with the critics though not really a breakthrough commercially because this didn't chart anywhere. Um, Very energetic. Um, Tucker and Brownstein swapped vocals back and forth, almost similar to what The Clash used to do with their vocals. Um, There isn't really a bad track on this, just a good guitar album. And the cover of it, the album cover, is an homage to the Kink Controversy album. Um, It has the same font. has, like, small pictures of the band members on the top over like a picture of Carrie Brownstein playing her guitar on um, the Kinks album did the same thing with like a picture of Dave Davies playing guitar, but they never really had a commercial breakthrough, but they were always pretty highly regarded in indie circles. Um, they're probably best known in the mainstream for being the band that Carrie Brownstein was in before um, she started starring at Portlandia. 
Um, not that Portlandia is very mainstream, but it's more mainstream than Slater Kenny. Yeah. Anyway, this this is a good album, good band, and actually Brownstein was in the news because uh, she's directing a biopic of Heart that's supposedly coming out soon. So. Hmm. so yeah, Portlandia's. I got to be in the right mood for Portlandia. Right. Yeah. I mean. Fred Armisen kind of gets on my nerves too. Yeah, that's so. the main problem. So, yeah, yep. But three for you is Corner Shop with When I Was Born for the Seventh Time. This was a refreshing change from most of my albums, anyway. Most of which were downcast or downbeat. Um, even and I'm and I say that even about the good ones uh, that I had. This one's a little bit more peppy. Um, corner shop if you don't know them which i didn't until i heard this somehow they slipped by my attention at the time uh they're from the uk the midlands specifically lead singer uh i, I think you say it tinder but it's t-j-i-n-d-e-r tinder sing is from wolverhampton by way of bristol by way of leicester where the rest of the band was uh from and they combined uh, UK and American sensibilities with South Asian sensibilities. So it's interesting. They uh, throw in some uh, sitar and other Indian instruments and stuff like that. But it's not world music. This is more trip hop um, kind of, I don't know how to describe it. It's really unique. Um, you know, club music, but not house music, I guess. Um Mm-hmm. I guess the way I described it is uh, the way I wrote it down anyway, is it's kind of like Beck's Odelay. If you pumped up the funk factor by a few notches and tapered down the over-reliance on sampling by another couple notches, although there are samples on it, but not to the degree of Odelay, which I'm not criticizing Odelay. That's one of its strengths, but it's in that same kind of universe of sound, I guess. Um, as you can guess, this album was critically acclaimed, being that it's number three on this list. It actually finished at the very top of Spin's best yep. albums of 1997. Yep. And it is really, really good. I listened to the whole thing, and there was probably only two songs that were even average on it. The rest of it was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, it is absolutely perfect music to smoke weed to as well. <laughs> now, I didn't smoke any weed to it, but I envisioned like, like the movie Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels would have come out like a year after this. Which, uh-huh. um, I don't know if you've seen that, but there's one of the one of the uh, tangents the movie goes on is there's these three stoners who grow weed in their flat in London, and this sounds like what they would be listening to while they were while they were growing their weed. So if you've seen that movie, yeah, you know, I could I could see that. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. But it also brings us to this week's Wikipedia fun fact of the week. Sponsored by what the hell were you spiking your herb with? So this is a quote. Uh, Singer and guitarist Tinder Singh described the recording process as very intense. There was a lot of smoking going on. It was a very relaxed time and very enjoyable all the way through. At the end, our engineer had to go for medical assistance. He got freaked out. He smoked so much and then stopped and he went loopy. He was on medication. His body couldn't take it. So I'm like the hell are they lacing their weed with you know yeah yeah exactly whatever it was it produced a pretty damn good album so if you're into some i don't know it's kind of good it's not chill music either but it is kind of fun to chill out to so right unique there's not another at least among my albums there was not another album like this on my part of the chart so 
really good. Yeah, I always really like the single from this Brimful of Asha. Yeah, I didn't bring that up. That that is a very good song. Although, and it is emblematic of this album, but most of it is just kind of just beats they threw together. That but they work and they and they do have that kind of you know South Asian sensibility about them, which makes them sound quite a bit different from some of the other stuff that was sort of similar that would have been in this vein at the time. So pretty cool. I, this actually, I, you know, this and, uh, and Beth Orton were my two discoveries of this chart. So I really dug it. Yep. Yep. Next up for you at number two, pretty famous one. Okay. Computer by Radiohead. I was thinking of using Clickhole's fake oral history of this album as my <laughs> only research material. Um, as a joke, but ultimately I decided against that. But I will give you this snippet from the article. Um, Tom York, I was going door to door telling people that Creep is a bad song when I found myself at a computer store. So I'm sizing up the place, and all of a sudden I get this thought, what if a computer could drive a car? Then I laughed because I got a picture of a computer drinking a pint and hanging out with his computer mates. Then all of a sudden I stopped laughing because I... Got the idea, what if a computer could play a guitar? I was transfixed by this idea. And that's when I knew we needed to do an album about that. <laughs> but um, in reality, this has nothing to do with computers drinking pipes or playing guitars. Actually, according to the band, it had no real concept at all. Um, but a lot of songs have to do with an alienation with the modern world. Um, but they weren't really intending on writing an entire album or basing a song cycle around it. It just got misinterpreted that way. Um, musically, it was inspired by just a lot of things that the band was into at the time. Um, nothing too experimental or obscure, really. Um, the Beatles, R.E.M., um, Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, Miles Davis, Ennio Morricone, and so on. Um, but when you combine all of that, it gets somewhat experimental, I guess. Um, they're also branching out a little bit beyond just like the typical guitar, bass, and drums that they've been doing before this. Like sound effects, keyboards, strings, mellotrons, glockenspiels, a speech program from a Mac, and so on. It's also a really dense sounding album, which is one of the producer Nigel Godrich's trademarks. It just sounds important uh, but it took me a while i did get this in 97 but it took me a while to check this one out um, i think i ended up buying this around the same time that this list would have come out um paranoid android and karma police had both probably come out as singles and i liked both of those songs and this album got a lot of good press but i wasn't really convinced because it was radiohead and to me they were just the creep band I mean, Creep was all right, but I wasn't really expecting a masterpiece out of these guys. It would have been like if the Toadies or Better Than Ezra came out with like an all-time classic album. Uh, but it started popping up near the top of almost every album of the year list. So I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I should check this out. And I'm glad that I did because this really is an amazing album. Um, I only have a couple minor complaints about it. I mean, Electioneering's a pretty lousy song. And exit music for a film should have been like the grand finale, like the last track instead of the fourth one. But anyway, it is a great, great album. And since I can't resist, I will put one more bit from the click hole piece. I want to see if you're picking out the same one that I want to read. Okay. 
Um, for the beginning, my goal was to make an album that would get us all sent to jail for the rest of our lives. Um, Ed O'Brien. I don't know why he wanted us to, all to go to jail, but he was insistent that we should all spend 20 to 30 years in jail to be considered a real band. <laughs> so. All right, here's my little clip because I pulled this up while you were talking. Ed O'Brien, it's not that we didn't like the record. We loved it. We just felt weird that all of a sudden it was the number one sex album in the world. That's not how we intended for this album to be enjoyed. Philip Selway, suddenly we hear that everyone's fucking to this album. And I'm getting a call from the president of Capitol Records every day thanking me for creating the fuck fuck anthem fitter happier. Tom York, (coughs) terrific, I assumed. Now we will surely be arrested and sent to jail for igniting a sexual plague with our speculative computer music. What an idiot I was. Every judge who heard the album loved it. I got thank you albums, thank you letters from them saying that OK Computer made them believe that sex was possible again in England. (laughs) And so on. Yes. Yes. But um, we're at number one here. We are. Here we go. Uh, Bob Dylan with Time Out of Mind. At this point, Bob Dylan had not released a full-on studio album since 1990. So this was obviously received with quite a bit of anticipation and i'll get to that in a second um hearing it now this sounds quite a it sounds a little bit like what rick rubin was going for with some of johnny cash's stuff and not necessarily in the style but in the way it's recorded um the voice is way up front in the mix um with instrumental accents but not necessarily instrumental domination so um, Bob Dylan has an interesting voice. Johnny Cash had an interesting voice. So it makes sense that they were recorded that way. Um, it's not necessarily minimalist, but it's in that vein. Not every song is minimalist, but a few are. Um, Dylan liked it to a point. Daniel Lanoy uh, produced it, probably most famous, I guess, for working with U2. Um, he liked the manner of, uh, he liked Lanoy's work, uh, working ethic. Uh, but he wasn't in love with the sound of the album and he's never recorded with them since. Um, It's pretty good, but I think this is a case. um, This is a case of two different things. Um, Seems to me established rock artists do get quite a bit of brownie points um, in these types of polls more than they sometimes deserve. Um, And it came after a fallow period. And a lot of times when a, artist a respected artist comes out with an album for the first time in a long time i think it reflexively gets praised maybe a little bit more than it deserves um and while this is pretty good um is this the top album of 1997 i don't think so um i think there's better, better albums on this list i just look at my own albums in the top 10 um it's better than bjork i i obviously made that clear but it's not better than any of the other ones i had in my half of the top 10 and looking at your half um the same claim could probably be made for most of them so this is people giving bob dylan respect which is fine he deserves it um but you know this isn't breaking any new ground uh very good though it may be it's basically early 70s style bob dylan um especially on Not Dark Yet, which is a pretty good song, with 90s-style production. So nothing wrong with that at all, but 
not necessarily, not in my opinion, the number one album of the year. Um, deserve probably deserves to be in those top 40. I'm not saying it's bad. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. But it's yeah. not better than Yola Tango or Corner Shop or anything like that or Radiohead. I mean, it's just, right. I, I think this is critics getting a little bit too excited with somebody coming back and not sucking, basically. It's like there's this, Neil Young used to have the same thing where he would come back, make an album. Frankly, most of them were pretty good, but it's like you're almost getting credit for not sucking. When you pretty much, out. yeah. Which I guess you've earned that, you know, if you're an artist who's established themselves as a talent, but that doesn't necessarily, you know, I look back at some of the Neil Young albums that got praised back in the 90s, and most of them are pretty good, but they're not like earth shatteringly great albums, you know, so. Yeah. Anyway, you know, and Bob Dylan himself obviously made better albums than this as well, so. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, obviously, but. But I, I mean, I'm assuming that like Rolling Stone had this as their number one. I have no, year. I have no idea. It, I didn't look into who actually listed it. I, but I just, well, on this list, it got the most amount of first place votes. It had a, 135 first place votes. The <laughs> next closest was a tie between Corner Shop and Radiohead, who had 122. So, <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't like it was, you know, a couple publications push this up the list it was universally acclaimed and it is good i mean i'm not sitting here trying to say it's not but my ears listen to it without you know kind of out of the time and place and based and of course now we know the influence of some of these other albums and if you redid this list these days i don't think it would be number one so oh probably no not. disrespect uh, to bob dylan but you know it just wouldn't be so right yeah that's it uh-huh so what do we have next week yeah well you and i have kind of been fucking around experimenting last week we went to france this week we did a year-end chart next week we're going back to meat and potatoes matt okay we are doing the hot 100 from december 7th 1974 okay where were you in 1974 um i wasn't alive yet you know what i was but Four years prior to that, I was Kowalski in Vanishing Point. <laughs> that is true. Maybe I was somebody else in 1974. Well, who who died in like uh, early 1978 that you could be? Oh, uh, God, I have no idea. Actually, let me let me look this up here. I'm, I'm sure they have like. Well, it doesn't have to die in the actual. I don't think Kowalski died on my actual birthday. So you okay. may have your your spirit may have floated around in like the ether, or maybe like Beetlejuice, you went to like the office and you got reassigned. Yeah. <clears throat> so it's not like it had to happen. It's not like I don't know how reincarnation is supposed to work, but I don't think you jump immediately from like one body to the next. It'd be pretty cool though if you did. Right. Let's see. Well, the closest one to when I was actually born was um, Andre Lalamond, who is a French astronomer. There you go. Or, or um, Isidoro Ayora, who is the president of Ecuador. Who's the la- Who's the most recent person before you were born that I would have actually heard of? Um, let's see, John Cazal. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. You were in the fucking yeah. Godfather. Yeah, yeah. You were in the yeah. Deer Hunter. You won. You got a, a Oscar nomination posthumously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and you got, um, you got 
shot in the head in Lake Tahoe. Yes, yes. And you were in uh, Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah, and he, he got shot in that one, too. That's right, and he did, didn't he? In Deer Hunter, um, uh, De Niro almost shoots him in the head. <laughs> or, like, pretends that he is going to shoot him in the head. So Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's who you were. You, I was Kowalski, so who knew? Yeah, yeah. yeah I was exactly. uh, Barry. Who, who played Kowalski? Barry, uh, shit. I can't remember his name. Um, yeah, it's yeah. I can't remember. Anyway, as we <laughs> sit here and try to figure out how the universe works, we'll be back next week in the mid-70s. Thank you for listening. We love you all. Happy holidays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, see you next week, everyone. Are you coming in or are you going to piss about all day? You're bloody finished. You know that, Jack. I'm bloody finished, you.